0: I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is Please Go On. We're doing something different this week because Fred Hyatt, my boss, mentor, and friend, and The Post's editorial page editor for 22 years, died on Monday at age 66. Fred went into cardiac arrest the day before Thanksgiving as he was visiting family in New York. He never regained consciousness. Tributes poured in from across the world. The Atlantic Council said dissidents and opposition leaders had no better friend in Washington and called him perhaps the most important force for freedom in all of journalism. Freedom House said Fred's death represents a heavy blow for the human rights and democracy movements. Secretary of State Tony Blinken said Fred's sharp intellect and wit enlivened any debate and his leadership set the standard for our modern age of journalism. In a speech on the Senate floor, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer mourned Fred.
1: He was a titan at the paper and in journalism for years.
0: Fred was all these things, and more. He was our captain, our compass, our conscience. He had a backbone of steel, but he was also the kindest and most decent man I've ever known. Over the next half hour, you're going to hear from a few post-legends about what made Fred a singular figure in American civic life. Fred studied history at Harvard and wrote for The Crimson, where he met his wife, Margaret Shapiro, an accomplished journalist in her own right who's also spent her career here at The Post. Fred went to work for the Atlanta Journal and then the Washington Star. When that paper folded in 1981... The Post brought Fred aboard to cover Loudoun and Prince William counties in Virginia. He wrote about politics in Richmond for the metro section, covered the Pentagon for the national staff, and then served as a foreign correspondent in Tokyo and Moscow, jointly running those bureaus with his wife, who goes by the nickname Pooh. In 1996, Fred joined the editorial board and became a columnist, and in the year 2000, he succeeded the late Meg Greenfield as editorial page editor. In the 22 years Fred oversaw opinions coverage, stretching from the dawn of the 9-11 era through the pandemic, his staff grew from a dozen to more than 80. The stable of writers he assembled stretches across the ideological spectrum. And journalists from Egypt, India, Turkey, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, and several other countries who have been banned from domestic media are also now published in our global opinions section.
2: At The Post, we are dedicated to providing a forum for a range of voices that can debate each other and have ideological diversity, you know, particularly if we can do that for people who are living in countries where the governments don't allow their own press to do it. The first
0: person I wanted to talk with about Fred is Don Graham. As publisher of The Post from 1979 to 2000 and then chairman and CEO until 2013, He worked with some of the best editors in the history of newspapers. He hired Fred to be editorial page editor. And in an op-ed this week, Don wrote that he's never known a better editor than Fred, nor a better person. Here's our conversation.
1: James, you and I are lucky people because we knew Fred Hyatt and worked with him. It's always hard to describe someone extraordinary to people who haven't known him and haven't worked with him. Fred was an old fashioned journalist. As a person, he had time to listen to you, whether you were the most famous writer on the paper or a child. When Fred died suddenly, I talked to several of your colleagues and asked them, in their own words, what made him so special. And one of them said to me, he was as smart as anyone I ever knew and kinder. Why did you decide to hire Fred for this important job? Even if Fred felt you were wrong, he wanted your view to be in the Washington Post if you, were, if you had any writing ability and any ability to formulate a good argument. He knew he'd been wrong at times. And uh, he would, would listen when people were arguing that the position he advocated wasn't right today. And that, that isn't everybody, James, as you know.
0: You note in the op-ed that Fred's editorial page endorsed, vigorously endorsed, The War in Iraq in 2003. As publisher, I was 100% behind him. Uh, Your your paragraph on this is is quite good. And then you end it with, I think Fred's views, our views, deserve the ringing condemnation of everyone who has never been wrong on an important occasion.
1: When Fred uh, and the paper and I, you know, I mean, uh, I through Fred, endorsed the beginning of that war, uh, a majority of US senators endorsed it a majority of members of the US house endorsed it but more important the the facts uh, were misunderstood not only the united states not only the cia but the british the french the germans and the iranians i think all believe that he possessed those weapons that was why we came to that conclusion. And all those governments were wrong. All those agencies were wrong. And we were wrong. And it had terrible consequences.
0: You write that you fielded many telephone calls and requests for meetings from desperate ambassadors who knew the damage Fred was doing to their ruler's reputation in D.C. when he was taking on autocrats and uh, in, in defending dissidents and human rights. Do you have any favorite stories that kind of capture the the essence of Fred as as a journalist in that way?
1: Fred was our correspondent in Russia for a time and got to know Boris Nemtsov and got to know the critics of Putin who were one after another being silenced and being punished viciously for their views. When Nemtsov got to come to the United States, he called on Fred to thank him. He advocated as strongly as anyone in the world for Aung San Suu Kyi in her heroic days when she was an opposition politician under house arrest and then jailed by the Burmese government. And when she came to Washington, she came to the Washington Post to thank Fred Hyatt. But he also advocated for a college student whose father had been thrown into a Chinese prison where she could not see him. She could not get official permission to visit her father, ever. And Fred not only wrote several columns about her, he wrote a book about it. Fred, his great deputy Jackson Deal, and the Post were a friend of the friendless these last 25 years, and a whole lot of people... Uh, some in prisons and some no longer in prisons, in part thanks to Fred and Jackson. I'm mourning his loss today. Don Graham, thank you so much. Thank you so much, James. When Don
0: sold the Post in 2013, Fred offered to resign and let the new owner pick his own editorial page editor. But... Amazon founder Jeff Bezos asked Fred to stay on. Another person I knew would have meaningful insight on Fred's life and legacy is David Hoffman, a Pulitzer Prize-winning member of our editorial board. He was a White House correspondent when Ronald Reagan was president, and he worked closely with Fred, who was covering national security at the time.
3: You have to remember that covering politics on the national staff of the Washington Post in the 1980s was very different than it is today. Basically, we were a very small staff. Uh, We were, of course, the center of attention in Washington because the star had folded the post was in such demand that people lined up outside the building on 15th Street to get the early edition of the paper. There was no internet. There were no cell phones. So a lot depended on your personal integrity. And your stamina, and your get up and go—you know—a lot of reporting was shoe leather reporting. And I remember that those Reagan years were very contested, very intense, and we all worked very long hours on that small staff. And of course, uh, Reagan had a huge military buildup, and Fred was covering that, and I was covering the White House. And my my memories are that we sort of started and grew up together at the Washington Post, and all the things that were happening around. This, these tremendous correspondents, David Broder, Haynes Johnson, uh, many, many more taught us how to do it. We were just kids, really. We were just beginning in our career. We were, felt very, very lucky to be there. We learned everything, soaked up everything we could.
0: What shaped Fred's worldview?
3: Uh, I would say he always had a healthy respect for the United States military. He felt that when we were critical, we had to be right and that we also had to have a strong military in order to defend the values that he believed in. And I think that also after that, uh, Fred was sent to Tokyo with his wife, Poo Shapiro, as a kind of a co-bureau chief's thing. And then his next assignment was Moscow. And when Fred and Pooh arrived in Moscow, it was literally the moment of the Soviet collapse. And they saw all around them this incredible enthusiasm of a people striving to become a free market economy and a democracy. And I think that you can't help um, having gone through something so tumultuous and so vibrant without it having uh, left a deep impression on you. And I know it did because I've talked to Fred about what he saw, and I was his successor in Moscow, and I saw much of the same thing in the 1990s. And what was that thing? It was, first of all, very, very clear to those who were there. If you actually saw it and touched it and listened to people's experiences, that the Soviet experiment had been a pretty miserable failure and when it was over the way which people desperately wanted to find a new system that would bring them prosperity that would bring them freedom was just palatable every day and you know I oftentimes think that uh, it's important with someone like Fred who has been so Uh, robustly and justifiably saluted for his leadership of the editorial staff. It's important to ask, you know, where did he get his ideas from? And I think those ideas came from this tour in Moscow of four years in which he and Pooh were sort of like explorers. And they went out into the crumbling former Soviet Union or the this very first years of the new Russia to see what it was like.
0: You were the foreign editor for The Post before you came over to the editorial board. Where do you think we see most markedly the world being a little freer or people being a little freer today because of Fred's influence?
3: For the past 15 years, um, despite Fred's influence, bad guys have hauled much of the world into the darkness of authoritarianism. There's been a huge backslide. It worried Fred terribly. He fought about it. He urged me to write about it. He wrote about it. He fought valiantly to try and expose some of these dark corners of the world, to try and persuade people that democracy was the right way to go. But there's been an awful lot of backsliding. One of the things that we all admired about Fred and which he reminded us was part of our duty was the idea that principles, um, you know, have to stand in a storm. That uh, if somebody you admired or something that you thought was important um, was overturned or if new facts came to light, that you should basically uh, approach even the things that you like the most with a really— um careful scrutiny and grounded in your principles. And I, I think the case of Aung San Suu Kyi is a good example. We were extremely pained when the Rohingya Muslims were forced from their homes, when the Burmese army carried out this scorched earth, uh, really horrible uh, onslaught against them, forcing them to leave their country, and Aung San Suu Kyi would not renounce it. And Fred said, we have to stand by the principles that we once admired her for and ask, you know, what what is happening?
0: Fred definitely was pained about democracy falling into recession and those bad guys winning.
2: It is, I think, unquestionably true that when the United States doesn't stick up for the values that we, at our best, stand for, including democracy and free speech and freedom of expression and freedom of religion, uh, then bad guys in the world start to feel like they can do things and get away with it. And we have seen, as you say, more and more of that, Putin poisoning enemies in Britain, and China kidnapping perceived enemies in Hong Kong and elsewhere.
0: Fred said that as he discussed the disappearance of post-contributing columnist Jamal Khashoggi. David, can you remind folks of what happened to Jamal and talk about how decisively Fred responded?
3: Jamal Khashoggi was a Saudi commentator who joined our global opinions when it was growing. And the idea of Global Opinions was to give people around the world a platform and a place to express themselves, oftentimes because they didn't have one at home. And in his case, he felt very dearly about the importance of uh, Saudi Arabia that would be modern and open and and a free society. He was passionate about his country. And so he began writing columns for us that were critical of the Saudi monarchy. And Those columns got under the collar of the crown prince who lured Khashoggi into one of the Saudi consulates in Istanbul um, and had him murdered and his body dismembered. And it's actually never been recovered. And, of course, this was a horrible crime that was shocking to everybody at the Post, especially because Khashoggi was such sort of a gentle Person And, uh, you know, his columns were very thoughtful and he was not a, a revolutionary, you know, he was trying to change his country in a way that we it certainly was consistent with the hopes and dreams that we had had for lots of places in the world. And Fred was absolutely destroyed by this. He was in tears when he first heard the news that Kachogi had been killed. And then he marshaled the forces of the post to stay on the story and to hold the monarchy to account for this brutality. And we ran— a page one day with a big white space where Kachoga's column usually was to remind people that his voice had been silenced, that we wrote editorials demanding the truth about what had happened. And to this day, we don't have the full truth, but what what we've learned is... Reprehensible. And I think that you saw in Fred's reaction the use of a free press and an open society to champion these values that he held so dear. And in this case, it was also very personal, but it was also very universal. Jamal was not the only person that Saudi Arabia had tried to silence and, frankly, All around the world, there are other Jamals in other places who've been silenced. And this was Fred's great crusade.
0: David, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Fred wrote a column in November 2018, and his lead was unforgettable. Why bring a bone saw to a kidnapping? That is the question the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia should be asked at every opportunity. Here's a brief clip of Fred talking with Mary Louise Kelly on NPR the day that The Post ran Jamal's final column, which he had submitted shortly before his death.
4: How has his disappearance affected your team and affected you?
2: You know, it's, it's very painful. Uh, first of all, he was well-loved by many people. You know, if this could happen to Jamal... It can happen to any journalist. And that's, to my mind, not the kind of world any of us want to live in.
4: Of the many things that struck me about his last column that you published today, one is that he thanks The Post for publishing his work, not only in English, but in Arabic, to reach, obviously, a an Arabic-speaking and reading audience. And I want to ask how common a practice that is and why you chose to do that in his case.
2: Because. We see our mission as um, presenting a range of opinions across a wide, ideological, diverse landscape, especially in countries where people can't get it from their own media. And Jamal was, you know, the reason he left Saudi Arabia was he felt he could no longer do it at home and that a lot of people who wanted to express themselves in Saudi Arabia were muzzled or imprisoned. And so he was willing to take some risks to do what they couldn't do and uh, if we can do it in their own language as well as in English, all the better.
0: We'll be right back after a short break. I'm now joined in the newsroom by Ruth Marcus, the deputy editorial page editor, and Eugene Robinson, a columnist. Gene was one of three columnists who won the Pulitzer for commentary under Fred's leadership. The others were Colby King in 2003 and Kathleen Parker in 2010. Fred was a finalist in 1999 for editorials on human rights, in 2000 for writing about the crisis in Kosovo, and in 2017 for writing presciently about the dangers posed by Donald Trump.
5: Here's Gene. I met Fred at least 40 years ago. (laughs) I might have met him once when he was still at the Star, but I certainly met him when he came over, when the Star folded, uh, when he came to the Post. And um, like all of us in those days, he started uh, on the Metro staff, which was the biggest uh, staff uh, on the paper. And then we have, uh, our careers have uh, uh, intersected over Uh, The years, um, uh, when I was uh, the number two on the foreign desk under Jackson Deal, uh, Fred and Pooh were our correspondents in Moscow, and uh, I went to visit them there. And then, of course, um, it was Fred who uh, gave me my column. I had a lot of experience then uh, at the Post, a lot of experience in news, but I had never written an opinion before. And... We didn't sort of know if I could do that or if I could uh, uh, find a voice. Uh,
4: but we, we knew, Gene.
5: Well, we didn't, well, actually.
4: Well,
3: well,
5: <laughs> I was there. You were there? Okay. Well, Fact check. In any event, he gave me uh, uh, the latitude and the, the time and the space, the real estate, to develop that voice and to use it. And um, I was always grateful to him. Um, uh, just an amazing colleague
0: and an amazing friend. Ruth, Fred also brought you over uh, to the uh, editorial page in the opinion section. and You also had a long and distinguished career on the news side before coming over. Talk about your relationship with Fred.
4: Oh, boy. When I came to the Post in the summer of 1982 as an intern and then for real in 1984, um, Fred Hyatt and Pooh Shapiro, Pooh Shapiro is Fred's wife who is a remarkable journalist in her own right they were the kind of power couple of the Washington Post they were the two reporters who everybody wanted to be and they really pioneered the as Jean was saying this capacity to do job sharing and show what a couple in journalism could do and if I could actually tell a kind of critical story about this institution that I love, It's my distinct recollection that Fred and Pooh very much, when they came back from Moscow, wanted to share a job on the national desk. This was um, in the mid-90s, probably, and it was a little bit too soon for employers, even as enlightened as The Washington Post, to understand that in order to accommodate married couples and the needs of working families, they were going to need to be more creative about all of this. The reason I'm telling the story is it tells us two things. One, it tells us something about something we haven't talked as much about, which is what a wonderful father and what an enlightened male um, I could say in this company of males um, Fred Hyatt was. He was so, and he has three magnificent grown children, so involved as a father in their lives, the notion that somebody would say, um, with these kids, and I think when they came back, there were only two little baby Hyatts, um, I, the third one came after they came home, that he would say, I am as, so committed to parenting that I want to sort of figure out a way to work part time so that I can be an involved father. If it happened today, it would be accommodated, but it wasn't accommodated then, And which is the second reason I'm telling the story, which is that is how and why, or a piece of how and why Fred Hyatt made the jump from, we say, tr- um, state to church, from news to <laughs> opinion and how he became an editorial writer at the Washington Post. Somebody was saying today that Fred is like my work husband, and he has been. I worked for him as an editorial writer, then as an editorial writer and columnist, then only as a columnist, and then six years ago, um, when I was walking the dog one day, he called and said, I have an empty nest idea for you. Um, uh, Why don't you come and be my deputy and help oversee the signed opinion content? And it was one of those moments in your life where you get a call and you don't even have to think about it. It was just yes. Mm -hmm. And so we got to work together so closely to build this section that has grown so enormously over the last year's and that, that, that is a section that, as our friend and colleague and Fred's new deputy, Karen Tumulty, said, is really the house that Fred built. It is smart, but not that visionary to say Jackson Deal would be a great deputy and a great editorial writer. It is smart, but not that visionary to say that Gene Robinson, who we know can write like a dream, you know, does have opinions and could end up executing opinion columns pretty well over the years. One of the things that is absolutely remarkable about Fred is his capacity to spot young talent, unproven talent, but discernible talent, and to take bets on that talent that other people would not take. And as we've been all kind of dealing with this tragedy, one of the things that's front and center is to know that Fred's priority would be to make sure that the young people are okay.
0: It was one of the really striking things when there was a, a group of us that gathered privately to talk about Fred. How many young people he did take a chance on right at a school, and and really a very diverse group uh, of of people. This and it's not just people from Ivy League schools or uh, you know p- people with a certain background. Uh, and, and it did feel like he wanted to build this. House of Fred, kind of folks across the ideological spectrum.
5: I genuinely believe the Washington Post editorial pages are uniquely diverse. Fred had his sort of um, North Stars, (laughs) democracy, freedom... Uh, human rights, things he deeply believed in uh, and uh, that you saw reflected in our signed editorials. He genuinely welcomed this diversity of views on uh, the opinion pages. When I had an opinion that might diverge from that of the editorial board, never once did I hear uh, um, anything negative or critical from Fred. He wanted that multiplicity of
0: in of civil views. discourse. And I
5: think, you know, I'm not just saying this because I've worked at the Washington Post for 41 <laughs> years, but I really think, do think the Post editorial pages uh, uh, do this better than anybody else. And that's a testament to Fred.
4: The Post has had a lengthy and strong line of opinions, but it has also had at the same time a broad diversity of views. And that has gotten um, actually much more complicated over the years as the left of the Democratic Party has moved further left and as the right of the Republican Party has moved God knows where Mm -hmm. off the charts. And so this was a central challenge for Fred, one that he welcomed so that we tried to find and we did find in the aftermath and as Trump ran, and particularly after he was elected, Trump-empathetic columnists. And Fred spent a lot of time patiently answering emails from readers who said, now I've had it with so-and-so. I am canceling my hereby canceling my subscription because I can't believe you printed this. And Fred would write them back and say, we'd be so sorry to lose you, but we'd be sorrier if we were to curtail our opinions and uh, we want to do it in a intellectually honest way we want to do it in a respectful way we're not going to use ad hominem attacks but we are not going to back down from this commitment and so i hope you'll reconsider sincerely fred hyatt and you know they were stunned to get a direct answer from an editorial page editor who they did not understand read his own mail but that was what we did time and time again
0: that intellectual integrity is such a hallmark Mm -hmm. and and speaking truth to power You've both led large staffs. You've both worked with a lot of journalists who are sort of can be head cases. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. What made Fred such an incredible, extraordinary, by all accounts, manager?
4: The capacity to tolerate the head cases. <laughs> yeah, you, do,
0: you know, you
5: tolerate um, because if you can't, Tolerate, uh, you know, at least a modicum of crazy. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to get those really creative, um, uh, really outstanding people. And they tend to be complicated. And sometimes they're not the easiest to manage. You know, I ran the style section. You want to talk about, you know, managing head cases. And, um, uh, but it was worth it. You know, you, you, that's, that's, that's a hallmark of a good manager, I think. Um, uh, At the same time, he managed to get the section out every day, you know, and and to keep it on track and to keep a remarkable consistency of quality just sort of day in and day out, day in and day out. It's really quite an achievement when you look back at it.
4: Fred intervened lightly, but perfectly. Molly Roberts was saying the other day that when she was in college and I had forwarded to Fred because she had been an intern with us something that she had written and he wrote back very good and that she hadn't realized at the time that that was extremely high praise and, you know, there was always this kind of careful calibration of praise. What's the good? What's the very good? Could I get an excellent? Um, But Fred would touch base and, but he, it wasn't just Praise. It was, are you sure you want to say this? Are you going a little too far with this language? The rest of what you've said is so carefully phrased. Are you going to regret this? What he really meant was, have you lost your mind? Um, You really shouldn't say this, but he got... By force of his quiet intellect, he got people to the right result in a situation where, as you know, James, because I've edited you, I might call him up and say, have you lost your mind? Right, <laughs> right, right.
5: Which, and, 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 and be that, justified, <laughs> totally justified in going there. But no, that's not the way he operated. But um, I, I think, uh, you know, as, as most of the writers for the section, I, I mean, I, you know, I didn't get like a call before deadline from Fred uh who had just read my column very often but when i did uh, whatever it was I, I was like automatic okay right. fred is fred is right my initial reaction always was even if it was a line that i really you know was very precious and i thought it was really good and i'd say no nah, it's got to go you know because yeah. fred's judgment is so sound and he uses it so judiciously
0: are there any particular fred stories that stand out that for people who didn't get the chance to know him or work with him, kind of capture how special this really, really kindly man was.
4: It's so interesting because kind is the word that has been most used. But it, um, in, in emails I've gotten from so many people, um, people who knew him, people in public office, just so many people – who might have had very small dealings with him, but they all came away with the same impression, which is kind and wise. And it's the twin capacity. But I think I want to tell a slightly different story, which is about Fred's fierceness, and in particular, his devotion to democracy. In the last years, as we have seen democracy under assault in America, Fred understood that this was an occasion for us as a institution, as a profession, for us as an editorial page and a section to rise to the defense of democracy. And he told us that nothing was more important than making certain that voting rights are adequately and fiercely protected. And so I have this vision of Fred at the Republican convention in Cleveland in 2016, sitting in the filing center and typing and typing and typing. And what he was typing was a very unusual editorial for us. It was very unusual because of its length, which as I recall was a full column. And it was very unusual because of its timing. Because ordinarily at a political convention, we would listen respectfully to a candidate, even a candidate who we probably thought we wouldn't endorse. And we would write our judicious to use that word that actually is relevant in this area assessment of the candidate. And then we would go on to listen to the other candidate from the other party and then deliberate and endorse. This time, Fred made the decision early on to an unsigned editorial, but it was written by Fred and it had the power and force of Fred's intellect to say that Donald Trump was, in our estimation, unfit to be president of the United States. And we were going to say this at length and we were going to say this early because we understood him probably not even adequately, to be such a threat to the Republic. And this editorial just exploded. It took off. And I remember, and this is another vision of Fred, which is he's like, I don't understand this. Why are people paying so much attention to this? It's nothing that we haven't said in previous editorials. I just put them all together. (laughs) Um, So he was fierce and he was modest. And I have this... Just view of him sitting at his laptop, banging that one out. And I really need to go reread it um, because we've been putting together some some excerpts. And I, I know that was one of his fiercest and one that he should be proudest of.
0: Fred went on CNN's Reliable Sources back in October 2016 to explain his approach to these editorials that Ruth's talking about. He said that election was fundamentally different than any other election in his lifetime. Fred was then asked by the host, Brian Stelter, whether he feared people would cancel their subscriptions or whether he worried that attacks on Trump might play into the then-candidates' hands. Fred answered in a very Fred-like way. And it offers a nice window into his approach toward editorial writing.
2: I don't think it's my job to kind of think about what are the politics of what I do. We have an editorial board that's quite diverse ideologically. We're not on one team or the other. Uh, Over the years, we've endorsed people from uh, both parties. And uh, our job is to give people the arguments as we see it and let them evaluate it.
0: Well, Gene, I'd love for you to offer your final thought as we close this out he just
5: really cared about people uh, and really cared about his death and everybody. That's one reason everyone is so affected by his death is that he was involved in our lives and he was he was uh, important to us and our families. And he was a great man. He was.
0: Thank you, Jean. Thank you, Ruth.
4: Thanks for giving us the opportunity Thanks to talk about him. Thanks so much, James.
0: Him. Yeah. All of the columnists here are crushed by Fred's untimely death. We wanted to bring together the voices of some of our other colleagues to reflect on the huge presence that we've lost in the newsroom and in the global discourse.
3: Fred hired me to the Post and then was my editor and my boss. He was a champion of young writers, giving many the chance that started their careers
4: believing in us sometimes before we believed in ourselves. He is the first boss I ever had right out of college. Fred's the only boss I've ever had. So to me, he's quite literally incomparable. But I think that even if I'd had 100 other bosses, he'd still be incomparable.
2: For 14 years, I learned from the kind, exacting, caring, and brilliant man that was Fred Hyatt. He privileged the politically persecuted individuals and groups
0: from every corner of the world. He spoke up for the Jehovah's Witnesses of Russia, for journalists who were jailed in Azerbaijan, for the political prisoners of Nicaragua. And he always used to tell us,
2: unless we do it, no one else will.
4: When a uh, Rwandan writer I worked with, Diane Shima Regara, was jailed by President Paul Kagame's regime not too long after she wrote a piece for us criticizing the government, Fred told me, you know, Karen, just write something. Let her know that we're supporting her and let the government know that we're watching. A few weeks later, another writer of mine, Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, was killed by Saudi agents. And then Fred used the awesome power of the entire op ed section, dedicating months to demanding justice for Jamal.
2: What I found most unusual about Fred, really from the beginning of our friendship, was the combination he had of being a gentle, almost sweet-tempered person in in his dealings with others, combined with an incredible toughness and commitment to principle. He was always that way. It made him a great reporter when he covered the Pentagon. It made a, a great foreign correspondent, but most of all, it made him a great editor and leader for us in the opinion section.
1: He was always genuinely interested in points of view he didn't share and in sharing those points of view with Post readers. He wanted the Post to publish well-argued opinions from all sides, even opinions uh, with which he vehemently disagreed. It was his unwavering commitment to diversity of opinion that made the Post opinion pages what they are today, an island of reason, discussion, and debate in a sea of ideological conformity.
4: You see, Fred himself was a beacon in everything he did, in the way he lived his life, in the way he searched for, convened, and nurtured talent, in the way that he was always opening doors and creating an even bigger table so more people could add their voice to the chorus of writers in the opinion section. This big, loud symphony with discordant viewpoints and varying octaves and Fred... At the center, the conductor with an open mind and a hungry ear.
0: As we wrap up, I have a vivid image in my mind, seared in my mind now, of Fred smiling and waving goodbye at the end of all our staff meetings over Zoom during the pandemic. As a gift for the holidays, I was going to give Fred an Ines Kanter jersey. Fred grew up in Boston, and Cantor is a center for the Celtics. He's been an outspoken advocate for human rights for years, criticizing the government in Turkey, where he grew up, which prompted Turkish authorities to seek his arrest. In an op-ed this June for our paper, Kanter wrote that in 2017, he had to flee Indonesia, where he was holding a basketball camp for kids after his manager told him Turkish intelligence agents had been sent to capture him. In October, the Chinese cut off the live broadcast of Celtics games in that country after Cantor expressed support on Twitter for Tibetan independence, a stance that's illegal in China. The NBA's repeated capitulation to China deeply upset Fred. Friday, Friday, is designated by the United Nations as Human Rights Day. For Fred, every day was Human Rights Day. I will never forget as long as I live joining him for meetings with freedom fighters who were visiting Washington from around the world, making their case from Belarus to Venezuela to Hong Kong. I'll also never forget watching Fred chastise the leaders of autocratic countries for persecuting dissidents, including in the final days of his life. I can't give Fred that jersey, but all of us who live in what Karen Tumulty aptly called the house that Fred built can do our part to carry the heavy torch he leaves behind. Please Go On is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, with editing from Allison Michaels, Renita Jablonski, Karen Tumulty, and Ruth Marcus. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon, who also helped Julie assemble those tributes from my colleagues. This episode was mixed by Veronica Simonetti and Ted Muldoon. I'd be remiss if I didn't note here in the credits that this whole podcast was Fred's brainchild. He was its biggest champion and heavily engaged in our weekly production process. It was his idea to elevate new and diverse voices here from young Afghan women like Shabana Basij Rasakh to the queer author Maya Kobabe to Deb Holland, the first Native American cabinet secretary. Our show notes include links to a collection of Fred's columns, his obituary, and additional tributes from the editorial ward and several other columnists. On behalf of everyone at the Post, our hearts go out to Fred's widow, Poo, who remains our valued colleague at the paper, as well as their three children, Alexandra, Joseph, and Nathaniel, and their beloved granddaughter. I'm James Homan. Thanks for listening.